Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Following was recorded on Sunday, January 30th, 2022. Today's message titled, Where the Good News of Jesus Meets Sex and Romance. A message from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with uh, a, a lot of touchy, controversial subjects. Um, Today, we're going to be dealing with romance and everything that involves. I do think we have to talk candidly about it. Uh, we're talking about the birds and the bees, if you know, if, if you know what I mean. Um, uh, we're, we're, um, we don't have kids ministry today. If you feel like, hey, we're not ready for this conversation, uh, that we can, if people can feel free to go upstairs and hang out there. So just for the, the parents in the room, I've, I feel like we need to discuss this for various reasons. Uh, and, and yeah. So I just want to put that out there as, as we, before we go into the sermon. So just going once, <laughs> going twice, going thrice. Uh, anyways, let's, let's pray as we go into the sermon. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for, for everything that you've done for us, for your grace, for your word being revealed, uh, for for just the fact that you have allowed us to gather here as we remember brothers and sisters around this world who may be doing the exact same thing right now, yet they can't gather in safety, but under threat of violence and even death for worshiping Jesus, for following in the way of Christ. And Father, as we remember our brothers and sisters around the world who do this, may we never take for granted that we get together that we get to study your word, that we get to know you more so that we can go into this week equipped better to, to reflect you to the people around us in our schools and our jobs, among our friends and family. Father, help us not just simply have dead religious practices where we come once a week and give you a, an hour and a half. And then we go into the week and we live the rest of life as if you don't exist. Father, may we be equipped to live in light of who you are and what you've done. Father, would you guide my tongue as we navigate these sort of controversial topics and, and start to look at them in light of the good news of Jesus? How does the good news of Jesus connect to romance and sex and everything else? Father, help us deal with this as we see that there's, uh, there's catechism going on all around us. There are people that if we don't step up and actually teach what you have taught us, how to view things in light of how you created us to be and enjoy them, someone else will. And so Father, I pray that you help me as we navigate these issues. It's specifically hard because we have people, you've blessed us with people from so many different nations, but that means they have different contexts, different family backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. Some of us have grown in societies like ours where everything is hypersexualized all the time. And then others have not really ever talked about this. And so Father, help me navigate how to talk about all this because your word does. And we want to stay faithful to your word. 
And as we go into navigating other issues, how the good news of Jesus deals with uh, mental illness, how it deals with anxiety and depression, how it deals with our identity in you. As we go into this, may you just help us see things through the lens of who you are and what you've done. May we go into the world as hopeful people ready to glorify you in everything that we do. May we not simply think of spirituality as something that happens in our heads and at most happens in our hearts, but never goes to equip our hands for the work of the ministry. No, we, we want to use all of who we are to glorify you. So Father, as we study your word, guide my tongue and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I gave you a fair warning. Uh, so let me, let, me, let me tell you a little bit first of what we're doing the next few weeks. So we've been dwelling in uh, John chapter 15, where we've been talking about dwelling in Jesus, what it means to abide in Jesus. Um, and we're going into a few weeks where we're just going to have how the good news of Jesus relates to blank. And we're going to do a topical issue that we're going to dwell on a verse to hear what the Bible has to say about a specific issue. Um, now it's difficult for our church because God has blessed us with so many different cultural backgrounds to talk about this. Some of us grew up, uh, uh, just in a culture where everything is hypersexualized. I, I feel like I grew up in both. <laughs> I grew up in the church where it was almost viewed like, uh, we don't talk about sex or almost like it's a bad thing until you get married and like, there you go, go, go and enjoy your, enjoy yourself. Or, you know, in school, seeing a completely different picture. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to jump into this is because someone is going to be talking about this. And I, I've been taken aback by stories from, from members of our church coming to me surprised that their kid at age 11 or so has been taught about this stuff and they haven't yet talked about sex with them. And they came back shocked and wondering, okay, is this normal? What's, what is, what is going on? Someone is going to be teaching this stuff. It, it, it might be teachers in school. It might be TV or games or culture or the internet. Um, and, and over the last few weeks, I've noticed a trend. Uh, a lot of us have noticed a trend for the last few years about me too. And the culture sort of navigating, how do we deal with all this, this violence in the name of sex? Right. And then we have, uh, like, um, one famous singer, Billie Eilish, came forward in an interview and said that pornography had broken her brain and how she viewed herself, how she viewed sex, how she viewed other people. Um, and then uh, this week here in Iceland, there's been talk about 15 and 16-year-olds going to sex education in school and being taught, bringing up subjects like very graphic subjects. <laughs> I don't know if I should talk about them here, like choking and all this type of stuff. And it's just like, all right, all these other people are talking about this. And I, I've been sort of like, okay, how do we navigate this? We're coming from different cultural backgrounds, but we need to talk about this. God talks about this. And I don't think we do, our any, do ourselves any favors of avoiding this issue because other people are not. Someone is going to be teaching us, our children about this. And we have to navigate, are, are we going to let the word of God be, be the final authority on this or someone else? Um, and what I've, you know, been, Coming, especially through the, the cultural conversation happening in Iceland this week, what, what's coming to light is that these kids are being taught about what sex is through pornography. And that's how they view sex. Um, and, and, and I remember this myself. 
like I think it was 12 or 13 year old. I was 12 or 13 when I was exposed to pornography for the first time. I remember being in class when I was 14. And the question was, when should people start having sex? And there was various answers. I think I was like, I was the stupid Christian. Uh, when you're married, <laughs> everybody laughed. Uh, one said, well, I think it's when you're 18, you can do it. Or the other said, no, I think you're legally okay. Or you're like 14 or whatever. And we know what the teacher said? When you feel like you're ready. He said that to 14 year olds. And those 14 year olds could have told that to their younger siblings to, you know, just when you feel like you're ready, someone is going to be talking about these issues. And I, I want to talk about this. A, a lot of people think that uh, idol worship, when we read about idol worship in the Bibles, that somehow we're dealing with issues and subjects that are, were for people back then, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah. They were the weird people who, who worshiped, you know, Artemis, the goddess, they were bowing down at her temple in Ephesus and they were worshiping her. But today we, we I just want to remind ourselves that idol worship is definitely uh, alive and well today, except that it doesn't necessarily look like Artemis, the goddess. It may look like, uh, you know, Ragnhild Jónsdóttir. You, you know her, right? Ragnhild Jónsdóttir. She looks like this. <laughs> that's, that's an idol for most people today. It's not like this anymore, but it's a paper bill. Right? For a lot of people, they, they don't worship at the altar of Artemis. They worship at the 5,000 kroner bill. How much can I have? They find their whole identity, their worth, their value in Ragnar Jonstotter. Ragnar Jonstotter seems like a nice lady, right? But once you place her on the throne of God, she won't fulfill you. She won't fulfill your souls. If you want to check if idol worship is alive and well today, just look at what people will do for Ragnar Jonstotter. You know, what is the saying? We make a living? No, we live for the earning. That's how most people live. We don't make a living anymore. We live for the earning. We want more. We want better. We want bigger. And that's where we find joy and happiness and value. If you want to check if idol worship is alive and well today, and maybe even in your own heart, you may be laughing at the people who bow at the 5,000 kroner bill because you're thinking to yourself, whether it's a 10,000 kroner bill <laughs> or whatever else, ask yourself these questions. Is there anything in this life that if God were to take it away tomorrow, I would be crushed? If you ask yourself and really dwell on that question, is there anything in my life that if God were to take it away tomorrow, I would be crushed. Now, for some people, idol worship is really obvious. When someone is willing to lie to their family, to steal for their family, to get the next dose of whatever substance they want to live for, it's obvious there's an idol in their life. For most of us, though, idol worship isn't necessarily heroin or cocaine or whatever else. Typically, it's good things that we view as ultimate things. And once we place good things on the throne where only God is supposed to sit, like my spouse, like my kids, even she's not bad. She's a nice lady, right? Once we put her on the throne where only God is supposed to be, then it becomes an issue. Now, I'm not saying that it wouldn't grieve, you wouldn't be grieved or hurt if you, lose, if you would lose a loved one. For example, if you were to lose a child or, or, or your spouse, 
I'm not saying that you wouldn't feel that because that's a good gift that has been pulled away. And I've experienced that loss and some have experienced that loss. But I'm asking ourselves, like, what is it that if God were to take it away, our entire hope would be gone? Like if we were to lose all of our property and all the stuff that we worked so hard to earn, it may sting because those are good gifts that God has bestowed on us. But ask yourself this question, would it crush me? Would it absolutely crush me? And one of the common idols that I believe permeates not only today, but the entirety of human history and is still worshiped today is sex and romantic love. By the way, for the parents who just entered the room, that's the subject we're talking about. <laughs> and so. Uh, I just warned everybody, if they're not willing to have that conversation with the kids, um, that, then you know. Um, the ironic twist of all of this is once we take good things and we place them as ultimate things in our lives, we start to ruin them, right? Money can do a lot of good. Man, you can, you can serve a person by handing them you can serve them and, and give a smile to their face. You can buy something awesome for yourself. You can provide for your family and children. Once you start to put money on the throne of your life, you start to ruin money. The ironic thing is, you know, in like First Timothy 6, 10, it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Have you heard this saying? That money is the root of all evil? This is popular in... No, no, no. He's not saying money is the root of all evil. Money is sort of neutral. Once you start to love money, then it is the root of all types of evil. And the same thing applies to romantic love and sex. Ultimately, God gave us romance and sex as good gifts. But if, however, we start to find our entire identity in these areas, we start to misuse them and ruin them and the beauty of romance and sex and ruin the joy that they can bring when they're used in God's ways. Well, for the next few weeks, I want us to take a break from dwelling in John 15. And before we go into the book of Nehemiah together as a church to deal with uh, specific issues on how the good news of Jesus applies to these issues. So we want to dwell on certain passages that deal with topics and how the good news of Jesus applies to them. Um, and we're dealing with, you know, how does the good news of Jesus uh, teach us about marriage or parenting or dealing with and being around mental illness? Um, or I, our identity. How should I view myself as a person? Where's my worth and value found? But before we go into this, let me, let me just warn you. <laughs> uh, problem, uh, I'm guessing the cultural conversation for the next couple of weeks is to revolve around certain very touchy subjects. Uh, there's a new law being passed in parliament and parliament has asked me and some other pastors to give our opinion about this new law. It is a law that would in effect make it a criminal offense to cause someone to be offended uh, over their religious views or their sexuality or gender. Uh, and the problem with this is that, of course, if, if we want to have an open dialogue, uh, anybody in here been offended by someone who corrected you on stuff? Just you. Okay, two people. The rest of you need some correction. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the, if we want to have an open dialogue, the problem is we risk being offended and we sometimes risk offending people, especially when you're attacking someone's idol. If they live for money and you want to say that's a bad thing, you know, or if they've given their entire life to a false religion and a false God and you want to point out that that's not a good thing, uh, then you risk offending them and if they want to do the same to you, they risk offending you. So it's shutting down, in effect, uh, discourse in our country. 
Now, it's based on a similar law in Finland, which currently now there's a politician in Finland who is facing criminal trials because of this law, because she posted a Bible verse saying that homosexuality is sin. So if this becomes law in Iceland, it could very well be that if someone, if, you know, if, if I post a sermon online where I say Jesus is the way, the truth, the light, and someone who is of another faith gets offended by that and decides to prosecute, we might be in deep water. Um, it could mean that if you disagree with someone's view on gender identity, you know, if you have someone who is uh, a boy and says, I want you to approach me like a girl and you don't agree with that, then that could cause offense and lead to problems. Um, it could, you know, I think an example there, one of the examples in the law itself is if you refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding, then, you know, that would be in trouble for you and, and so on and so forth. So for the next couple of weeks, at least, I want us to dwell on the topic of how the good news of Jesus relates to sexuality and gender with the hope that if anybody asks you the question, if we're going into a controversial time, you can point people to these sermons or with the hope of giving you some ways of talking about these issues, if they're like, hey, are you a part of the church that hates everybody? And it's like, well, no, actually, that's not the case. You know, So that's our hope with these next few weeks. So today, we're going to be diving into how the good news of Jesus speaks to sex and romance. And it actually flows quite nicely, oddly enough, from our topic for the last couple of weeks, which has been to abide in Jesus. Uh, because really the takeaway for the last few weeks has been this. We abide in Jesus by our obedience to his word. And in our obedience to him, we get to experience God meeting us where we're at. It's what we want to do as a church. We want God to meet us where we're at. And the odd thing is that Jesus, when he says, abide in me, in the end, after he deals with that in John 15, he says, this will be the fruit. This is what's going to happen when we start to abide in Jesus, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what Jesus is saying there is saying, if you follow me, if you lay your life down and follow me, you will find my joy in you and you will find that your joy is complete. And so I want to, as we go into these controversial topics where most people are going to think of uh, us dealing with sexuality and all that, it's sort of like, oh man, these negative Christians just hate people having fun. That's how I thought of Christians for the longest time. Like, why do Christians hate having fun? (laughs) Why are they against everything? Why are they so annoying? That's how I thought of us. But I want to remind us of this from this verse, that God is not opposed to your joy and satisfaction. And I would actually agree with uh, what, what I jokingly refer to as the Baptist Pope, John Piper, is saying is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is not opposed to you being joyful. Actually, he says the fruit of walking with him, abiding in him, is that our joy would be full. And so keep this in mind when we go into these controversial topics like sexuality and danger to a lot of people, it sounds like a life submitted to God results in a joyless and hopeless existence. But Jesus promises his joy to us that our joy would be complete. And so the question for us, like as we go into this is, first of all, let's think about this. How do you view the commands of Jesus? Think about the commands of Jesus as like a fence around you. 
All right. Do you view that fence as like a prison fence that's designed to punish you? That's designed to limit your freedom, limit your joy, limit all the things that you could do to cause you just to be joyless and hopeless? Or do you see the fence around you as sort of a protective fence for God to say, no, 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 I want you to flourish, but I'm going to put this fence around you to protect you from outside danger so that you can be here with me in the relationship that I created you for so that you can have joy and your joy can be full. How do you view the commands of Christ? Because that really depends on uh, a lot of people. A lot of people see the fence of Christ and they say, oh man, he hates people having fun. But keep this in mind as we move from talking about abiding in Jesus, we hold to these views, not because we want you to walk out of here today and seek to modify your behavior. My hope for you is not that you would walk out of here today and look more like a Christian. My hope is that you would be a Christian. <laughs> and out of that, my hope is that we would abide in Jesus and that would start to transform our heart. Because from a transformed heart, you start to love, right? All you married people in here, do you think you have to like remind yourself every day of like, man, okay, it's, gonna, I'm, it's a new day. I just got to remember not to be mean to my wife. I just got to remember not to curse her out, not to like cause her not to be violent or anything like that. Anybody think that way here about her spouse? I hope not. Uh, if, if you do, then let's talk after the service and, and pray some together, right? That's not how love works. When you love someone, you don't have to remind yourself constantly of not hurting them. You just simply don't. <laughs> you simply love them, right? But for a lot of us, we seek to change our behavior before having the heart of Christ. And so we're trying to remind ourselves as we go out the door, don't curse Christ. Don't be mean. You know, don't be all this stuff. Instead of just saying, I want to love Christ. And out of that comes changed lives. Attach yourself to him and you will find that your behavior isn't simply changed or tweaked. Your heart is changed and transformed. So there's two myths that I want to attack today. Number one is this myth, uh, God hates sex. Uh, simply untrue. Now, I, I want you to look at the Bible, your Bibles with me uh, all the way in the beginning in Genesis 1, 28. Uh, we see the command of Christ is for Adam and Eve, the first couple, uh, to populate the whole earth and fill the earth with human babies that become human adults that have more kids. God is encouraging sex. He's encouraging a lot of sex. And in the right context, in the first marriage, now think about this. I, I think about this all the time. God could have just made it so that we would propagate and, and, uh, and, and uh, fill the earth by laying eggs like chickens, right? He could have done that. It would be weird. Probably not though, because that's all we were used to. He could have done that, but he gave it as a good gift, not only a way for us to fulfill the command uh, and enjoy it, but to make it enjoyable and beautiful and a way to grow close and to, to communicate love. You see, God is good who is not opposed to our enjoyment of sex. He simply wants it to be enjoyed in the right context. And only there is true enjoyment of it. Like if I were to say, uh, you know, someone gifted you a car and what is, you know, it's, it's good that you have a new car, right? And car is designed to get you fast from one place to the other while on the ground. But let's say someone gave you a car and you decided, I want to get fast from one place to another. 
but I want to fly. And you decide to take the car and drive it off a cliff so that you can get one from one place to the other while flying. That doesn't end well for anyone involved, right? Because the intent of the creation, the intent of the gift has to be taken into context. You see this in the letter that the apostle Paul writes to the early church in Corinth. And this is the text that we're going to be dwelling on mostly today is first Corinthians chapter seven. Now it's really interesting. So the new Testament here, especially in Corinth, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are new to the faith, who are coming to faith out of all these cultural backgrounds and different religions. So there are pagans there that are used to viewing sexuality very, very different. There are pagans there that are used to going to the temples and seeing temple prostitutes and all this type of stuff. And they're asking Paul, the apostle of like, what does it look like to live the Christian life? What am I supposed to view marriage like or sex like right now? And he, he's writing this letter to answer their questions. And in chapter seven, he starts to deal with this topic of sexuality and, and marriage. Uh, and he says here, now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man to not to have sexual relations, uh, wait, men not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each her woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Yeah, and likewise, the, this interesting translation, right? Anybody speak this way? Conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, a lot of people may find it weird that I title the sermon where the good news of Jesus meets sex and romance. Because for a lot of us, we divorce uh, we divorce religion from action or bodily stuff. Like a lot of us, we view spirituality as something that happens here and here, but never concerning the body. Uh, because you may not connect Jesus hanging on a cross to romance at all. You may not see Jesus hanging on a cross and think to yourself, wow, this really changes the way we view sex. So, let us remember, though, that our worship is not simply limited to our head or our hearts, but also our hands. Like Romans 12, 1 to 2 tells us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice that holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Like one of the verses that sticks out to me is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Have you thought about this verse? Whether you eat or drink, if we can eat or drink to the glory of God, we can do just about anything for the glory of God. Or, and it actually says this, or whatever you do, which includes the rest of life, we can do it all through the glory of God. So for a lot of us, we tend to do this mistake where we disconnect spirituality from our physical living. And we just think of spirituality as something that happens on a Sunday as I sit and listen to the preacher or sing the songs, or when I read my Bible, that's the spiritual aspect of my life. And then I go into the rest of life. But what the Bible says is that everything we do 
is worship towards God. So our view of romance and sex is included. Now go back to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Let's dwell on verses two to five. The apostle, he's very much in favor of people enjoying sex within the confounds of a Christian marriage. Um, it is one of the beautiful benefits of marriage. And I tell people who are about to get married that it's difficult to wait, but then you have the rest of your life to catch up on all the things that you missed out, right? But notice that in our text, in verse two, he not only talks about the enjoyment of sex, but he also talks about the misuse of sex. He says there, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Now the Greek term for sexual immorality there is as a word that many of you may, may recognize. It's the word porneia. That's uh, where we derive the word pornography from. And this word for sexual immorality, this word porneia, it's an umbrella term that describes so many things. It basically says every distortion of sex that goes against how God created it to be. Now here, if you start to read your Bibles and you start to take into context everything that God has to say about this issue, you think of, okay, what, what, are, what are the distortions of sex that God talks about in the Bible? He talks about sex outside of marriage. He talks about homosexuality. He talks about uh, rape, incest, bestiality, prostitution, and every other way of distorting sex. And that's all encompassed here in this one word, porneia. Today, you can definitely add pornography. It's literally the, the root of the word is used there. Now, here are two ways of the good news of Jesus and how the good news of Jesus relates to sex and romance. Now, we can talk about homosexuality and gender and a lot of these controversial topics, uh, maybe next week or the week after that, but let's focus today on heterosexual sex and romance for this week. Number one, how the gospel relates to sex is in our past failings, Jesus cleanses us. Because we live in a culture that tends to elevate the worth, the, 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 what sex is, a lot of people, they tend to come to church with a past and they hear stuff like, oh, this is actually all wrong what you've been doing. This is all sinful. And they're crushed by it. And let me just remind us of this. And Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. A lot of, a lot of people when they talk about this subject have not conveyed this aspect of who Jesus is. It's not been gentle. It's not been lowly of heart. And he says, you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So maybe you grew up in a culture like I did where so many do in our day and age and you have placed your ultimate hope in sex. Maybe you wouldn't say it that way. Uh, I think very few people would, but the reality is a lot of people live like that's true. Maybe it's in, you know, finding the perfect sexual experience or romantic experience or being the perfect sexual partner or romantic partner. Or maybe you, you find your identity and hope in giving the perfect experience or being the perfect sexual partner, jumping from one person to the next or, or getting people to notice you in a sexual way that gives you a feeling of self-worth. 
maybe in a society that is increasingly becoming hypersexualized and you saw people giving their attention to pornographic images and standards, then you sought to become like those standards so that you would get noticed and feel loved and appreciated. And you may hear the definition of the term porneia, that is the distortion of all sex outside of the framework that God has created it for. And you may say to yourself, well, I look back on my history and I see a lot of that. I see a litany of distortions. So here I am and what am I supposed to do? Let me remind you, the reason we're all here is because we're saying we're sinners. We can't earn our way to heaven. We need a savior. And this, because this is such a prominent issue within our culture, it sometimes transfers into the church. And somehow people view if you have this sort of past versus other types of past, then it's worse. But we're all here on equal terms at the cross of Jesus saying, would you save us? And he does with his blood. Let me tell you this, those sins Jesus has died for. The question is, as we go out of here today, are we still going to believe the lie that if we abide in ourselves, or if we abide in our own sexual freedom, then we will truly find joy. And then our joy will be full as long as I get to define what is good and what is right. And I get to live my own way. Then I'll be joyful. Or will we come to Jesus? Because we're tired of running. Because we're tired of being our own gods. We're tired of trying to rule our own universe and it just results in more pain and more disappointment. Will we come to Jesus and abide in him and let go of the counterfeit gods that would tell us that, man, just like Satan did in the garden, it's been the same story ever since. What does he tell Adam and Eve? Oh, God is just trying to hide joy from you. That's been the same lie that each and every one of us has had. God is trying to hide joy from you. So go enjoy what you think is going to give you joy. And what we find is what Adam and Eve found out is that only joy, joy is only found with God. And Jesus, he's inviting us to live a life that follows his path. And the yoke is easy. The burden is light because you find that following Jesus is the very thing that you were created for. You were created for this communion with your God. And so run to Jesus who died for your sins, who paid your debt with his blood, run to him, abide in him and let him transform your heart. Let him change your head, fill it with his truth and let us be transformed in the way we live. Jesus, he took on our shame. You don't have to carry it around anymore. You don't have to punish yourself. Jesus was punished for you. Just come to him as your savior and the one leading the way and you will find rest. And if, if you're coming here with a checkered past, I want to remind you. So we're dwelling on 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 today, right? And so he's talking about sex and marriage and all that type of stuff. Just in the chapter previous, he, he's dealing with similar questions that the Corinthian church is asking. And he's saying here, it's like, it, it starts off bad. And, and so most people just focus on the first two verses here, which just astounds me. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that is porneia, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Most people stop there. And I find it amazing. It's like, really? That's what you want to focus on? Just all that. For most of us, we can find ourselves in some of these categories. Some of us have been greedy. Some of us have been revilers or drunkards. Some of us have been sexually immoral. But here he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. So the number one way that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ meets us when it comes to sex and romance is that it, cleanses us. This deals with our past. If you're coming in here with a checkered past, you're in good company. Most of us are, not most of us. There's one among us, Jesus, who's not coming from a checkered past. The rest of us are. And, and the second way that uh, the gospel relates to sex is this, in enjoying the good gift of sex and romance, the love and the attitude of Jesus actually informs us of what love is like. Not only are we informed that true joy is found in living according to the will of God, but also we, we, we are told how to use our newfound freedom. Notice that uh, in the Bible, it says in Philippians chapter two, though he was, it's talking about Jesus, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice this. Jesus comes to the earth. He can fully come and just demand to be worshiped. And he could ruin everybody who doesn't. He could simply judge all of us where we stand. He could demand to be served. And yet he comes and takes on a role of a servant. Jesus not only let his rights down and therefore saved us, but in laying his rights aside, he gave us our ultimate example of what love actually looks like. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, even in, even, even in sex, we see this. You have a husband and a wife. And this is one of the sad things that happened in, in our modern day. Like what is the difference between Christian merits and any other merits out there today. Sad truth is that most marriages today are more informed by Hollywood movies about what romance should look like instead of the Bible. This is true within the church and outside the church as well. But notice in these verses here in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 4, that you have a husband and a wife. You have these two individuals that are entering a marriage and even having sex with the hopes of not using the other to feel served or to feel gratified. No, there are two people in there that are seeking to serve and love one another. They're not going into the marriage thinking, how can I squeeze as much joy as I can out of this man or out of this woman? How can this woman serve me? How can this man serve me? No, they're coming. How can we serve one another? How can we reflect Philippians 2 in laying my rights aside so that I can serve and love my wife and she can serve and love me? But have you noticed like what, this is not the Hollywood type of romance. Hollywood type of romance, what pornography would tell us that sex is, is that it's purely for your enjoyment. It's dehumanizing. 
It says that this person who's created in the image of God with worth and value simply exists so that you can gratify yourself. What does romance tell us in Hollywood movies? If I don't feel loved anymore, if I fell out of love, then I'm out of here. What does the Bible tell us? No, it tells us, no, we, we have two people not saying it's all about me. It's about how you serve me and, and how gratified I am in this. No, we have two individuals going into a marriage saying, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And so reflecting how Jesus has loved us. And when you have a romance and sex where two people are not seeking themselves above all, but to serve and love one another, you have quite a beautiful picture of the good news of Jesus. Yes, even in sex. Now, if you're single in here today, you may be thinking, I could have skipped this Sunday. <laughs> Let me tell you something too. There's another myth that is exposed in our text today in 1 Corinthians 7. And it's very popular today. Myth number two, you need sex and romantic love to have joy. And the red color does not work on the projectors. <laughs> you need sex and romantic love to have joy in life. Now, if you're in here and you're planning to stay single for the rest of your life, which is really talked about in the Christian life, but the Bible mentioned that is very well a possibility. If you're in here and feel just like, I just want to serve God full time for the rest of my life. That is something the apostle Paul is actually trying to convince people to do. And we rarely talk about it. That is an option. Or maybe you're in here and you're like, well, that does not appeal to me at all. <laughs> I want a husband. I want a wife. Uh, let me remind you, because this is such a common idol in our world today of romance and sex in our modern society, this lie is very common that you need romance or you need sex to have joy in life. But notice this in, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 1 that we already read, but also verse 7 and 8, the apostle Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's saying that's, a, that's an option. And later on, he says in verses seven through eight, I wish that all were as my, I myself am. Okay, what are, you, what are you talking about, Paul? But each has his own gift from God and one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He's actually trying to convince people, like, hey, you don't have to get married again. And he goes on, if you want to read the rest of the chapter, he goes on the perks of staying single. You can devote your entire ministry to the church to serve God. Once you get married, you take on responsibilities. You have to care for your wife. You have to care for your husband. And you can't devote yourself fully to ministry. You have to care for them first. Now, let me break down this lie. Because a common saying in our day and age is that you need a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife to complete you. Have you seen this in movies? Again, Hollywood coming in strong with this one. He completes me. She completes me. <laughs> Man, he must be a wonderful dude. I've, I've yet to you know, complete my wife. Uh, Romans can be a blessing. Sex can be a blessing. But our ultimate identity is not found in how sexually active you are or your marital status. You are not completed by your husband or wife. And let me warn you this, if you're yet to go into marriage and you plan to, if you go in with the expect expectation of your husband is going to complete you or your wife is going to complete you, let me just warn you, 
you're going to be sorely disappointed. And you should be. And your husband and your wife is going to crush under the weight of carrying that which only God can carry. Only Jesus completes you. Only God completes you. If you go into marriage without realizing that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down some bad paths. Um, your worth is given by God who created you in his image. He has made you his child. He has purchased you with his own blood. Your loneliness was covered on the cross. You are in right relationship with God. Your sin was purchased on the blood. You don't need a husband or a wife to affirm you in your worth. There's a cross on Golgotha that has already affirmed your worth. Now in his letter, Paul the apostle is even trying to convince people to stay single so that they can serve the church. And notice this, we're reading a letter by a single brother that lived 2000 years ago and he dedicated his full time just to serve God. Here we are still dwelling on his words and I am thankful for that. So if you're in here and you've been given into the lies that you need a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife to be complete, let me just say the Bible disagrees. God disagrees. Now, if you're someone waiting to get married, let me encourage you to learn this lesson before you go into your merits. I've said many of you before, our first year of marriage was horrible. It was the worst year of our marriage. People talk about the honeymoon stage and all that lasted for like three days. And it was a horrible year of marriage because I was bringing all my idol worship and now laying it on this one person. She was not equipped to, to, to complete me. Neither was I. If you go into marriage, with the idea that he or she is going to complete you, you will be sorely disappointed and you, they will be crushed by the weight that only God can carry. Also, if you go into the marriage, the way it is, you know, that way it is going into marriage without being informed by the good news of Jesus. It's going to be very difficult to say she completes me and yet you're going to make sure to serve her, love her, lay down your life for her. And same for ladies. If, if you're going into the marriage saying he completes me, it's going to be very difficult to do the same. That will quickly start to, uh, to ruin the beauty of romance and sex. Also, if you're single in here and you, you, and you want to be married, let me challenge you in this. Today is a good practice, good, good opportunities to start laying down your life to the person that you will later on meet. You can right now start to express love and show faithfulness to the spouse that's going to come, which will give you a beautiful foundation for marriage. No matter if troubles come or what. Now, I, I was trying to, trying to find this statistic. I remember reading one day that the most common time period for men to cheat on their wives was when they just had kids. They really that. They just had children. They just bore them children and they were cheating. And I, I remember this article going into this and I think they were looking at what, what is the reason for this? It's because sex was off the table for a few weeks. So you had a person who just wanted to be fulfilled and now there wasn't that option because the lady had to recover. If you go into with that mindset, it's going to ruin the beauty of everything. You'll be telling them that you have waited, you have entered into this marriage with a godly mindset. And if troubles lie ahead, you'll be faithful because it never was about you. 
This will actually elevate the beauty of the romance. Uh, and, and it creates a type of marriage where two people can be raw and open with one another and feel comfortable not to have to perform to earn one another's love, but to rather enjoy it freely given. In waiting and taking on this massive challenge, and it is a massive challenge in a hypersexualized society, you enter into this beautiful covenant saying, this was never about me. But man, I'm ready to see what kind of beauty we can enjoy now together. Here's the good news for all of us. God is gracious. If you're in Jesus, your past doesn't define you. He has died for your sins and your shame. The only thing we can do, accept that gift and run to him. And when the temptation comes again to flirt with a sin, we have to remember, do I really want to live a life that flirts with the sin that sent my savior to die for me? And here's the good news for all of us. God is good. God is truly good. His word, his wisdom is not seeking to kill your joy, but to give you joy, but because he is good. And here's the good news. God is great and God is glorious. So when God says, hey, I want you to live life this way, and that's actually where joy is found. It's not simply him like me trying to or attempting to throw out ideas that might make you happy. No, he actually is glorious. He knows what will make us happy. He created us and he knows what he created us for. So when it comes to our view of sex and romance, let me close with this. Let us, let us think of it and approach it God's way seeking to do what he says, abiding in Jesus by abiding in his commands to us. And then we get to experience him, that he truly is gracious. Jesus truly is good. He's great. He's glorious. Let us seek to celebrate his love as we go into this week. And let's reflect his love in our marriages, the way we have our minds transformed about how we even approach marriage and, and not be conformed into the lies of the world, the lie that told us, the same Satan, satanic lie from the beginning. Oh, God is trying to prohibit you from being joyful. If you just go your own way, you will find joy. But let us, let's remember, look around. We live in a messed up world. We live in such a broken world. And this is the fruit of going against what God has told us to do. When we decide to live life without limits, the limits that God placed on us for our good, it results in death and brokenness. So as we go into this week, let us celebrate what God has done. He has cleansed us. He's good. He's glorious. He's gracious. And as we go into this, this next few weeks where I, I have the feeling that there's going to be a lot of the cultural conversation revolving around sex and gender identity and homosexuality and this new law, um, if, if the past is anything to judge by, let's seek to just be thinking about things from a biblical perspective, saying, God, I believe you're good. I believe you know best. And I want to answer people in a gracious and humble way to point them to Jesus. And, uh, and hoping the next few weeks, we can dive into these passages together to do just that. So let me pray as we go into this week and let's sing a couple of songs together. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for your mercy. And I pray for wisdom as we go into these few weeks, uh, as we navigate these touchy subjects from a lot of people coming from very different expectations and cultures. I pray that you would help us ultimately follow you, glorify you, be informed by who you are and what you've done for us. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the fact that you have allowed us to participate in what you have for us. 
And as we, as we go into this week, I pray that we would remind ourselves that worship is not simply limited to this gathering, but even as our gathering is coming to a close, we get to walk out of here today and continue to worship by laying down our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Help us to serve one another. Help us have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing all around us and participate in it. Help us reflect your love to us in our marriages, towards our family, in our singleness. Help us, Father, glorify you and enjoy you above everything else. Because that's joy that is unshakable. It doesn't change with circumstances. It's there. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we go into this week, may we enjoy you and may we have our joy firmly planted in you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.